Good morning. Good to see you all this morning and uh, good to be in God's house. And today, as Nathan said, we're, we're continuing our study of the life of Paul. Paul, a guy who changed the world in innumerable ways, and we are called to be world-changing people. Maybe not to the same extent as Paul, but the world should be a better place because we were here. People's lives should be changed because we were here, drawn toward God. Even if they don't, in the end, choose to follow Him, they should be drawn to Him by us. And one of the things that's going to take from us is the quality of courage. Now, despite what you've seen in the movies or heard in literature or maybe even thought, It's not like some people are born courageous and others aren't. Courage is something you have to learn. And I say that intentionally, learn. Because I've been praying for courage my whole adult life. I'm just not a naturally courageous person. And there have been lots of times through my life where I chose to chicken out instead of doing the right thing or saying what needs to be said or having that difficult conversation. And so I've been praying that God would make me more bold and courageous. And what I've learned is when you do that, he answers your prayer, but it's not all at once. It's not like you wake up the next day and you're like, you know, Peter Parker being bitten by the radioactive spider. Suddenly you have all this power of courage, right? That's not the way it works. It's something that you grow in. You grow in courage. And how does that happen? Where does that come from? So I'm going to start today, and this is really appropriate since this is the Sunday after Veterans Day. My dad... Uh, was served in the U.S. Army during the World War II, uh, World War II, Vietnam era. He served in Vietnam in 1969. He was stationed in Kamran Bay on a base there uh, on the coast of the South China Sea. And uh, one of his duties, he was a sergeant, one of his duties was uh, guard duty. He would make sure that there were two guys out on guard duty every night. So every night he'd pick up these two guys and different guys every time and take them by Jeep out to a, a place on the outskirts of the base, and out there where it was dark. I mean, there were no lights, nothing. If there was no stars in the sky, you couldn't see the, uh, the, your hand in front of your face. And they'd have rifles and flashlights and uh, a couple of walkie-talkies, and he'd drop them off, and then he'd come back and get them in the morning, first light. Well, one time, and I've heard this story several times, one time there were these two guys who were brand new in country, and it was their first time on guard duty. And as he took them out, they said, listen, uh, Sarge, we'd like to we'd like to dig some foxholes, you know, dig a foxhole to to burrow burrow into for the night. And he said, you don't need a foxhole. We've got a guard shack. You just use that. And they said, oh, come on, let us, let us dig a foxhole. We brought, we brought shovels and everything. They'd seen too many World War II movies growing up. And dad said, okay, whatever, go ahead. Now, on a sort of related story, the base there had an interesting way of, of getting rid of their waste. Okay. So what would happen was, Whenever the latrines were full, some unlucky private would have to truck it all out to the outskirts of the base and find a random sand dune, dig a big hole, pour it all in, cover it with motor oil, set that on fire, and then cover it with sand. You probably see where this is going, right? My dad goes out, first light, picks up these two privates, and they are coal black from head to foot, and they smell like you can only imagine, and they were very popular for the next week on base. Now, I've heard that story at least a dozen times. I think it gets funnier every time my dad tells it. Then there are other stories that he tells that aren't quite so funny, like, for instance, the time when the enemy was lobbing mortar rounds into the base where he was, and one hit so close to my dad that he never even heard it. It just, his ears were ringing suddenly and he was flat on his back because it had hit so close the concussion literally knocked him down. And I, I think about that story, I've heard that one several times as well, and I think about how if it just would have been a few feet the other direction, 
I wouldn't be here because my dad would have died that day. And so I think about those two stories, the funny and the not so funny, and I think about how that's emblematic of the way we face danger and, and things that scare us, the things that give us anxiety, because a lot of us, maybe all of us, spend most of our lives digging foxholes when we don't need them, trying to cover ourselves, trying to insulate our lives from anything stressful, anything anxiety-producing, anything dangerous, anything frightening. And no matter what we do, no matter what we do, the explosions come in ways that we least expect them, at times when we least expect them. And we need courage. And where does that courage come from? How do we develop courage? I'm not just talking about when scary things happen, but for those moments when we need to do or say something we'd rather not do or say. Where does that courage come from? We see in this story of the Apostle Paul, Acts 27, I don't know if it's the most exciting chapter in the Bible, but it's definitely the most exciting in the book of Acts. There's a lot of detail here. If you're someone who has some experience out on the water, you're going to like the level of detail in this story. You're going to understand some of the things that, Paul, that, that Luke is saying. Luke was an eyewitness of this. He experienced this himself. So that gives it an extra level of vividness. So Paul at this point, just to catch you up, has been in prison in Caesarea for two years. Remember, he's in prison for nothing more than trying to spread the gospel in Jerusalem and he has appealed to Rome. He has said, as a Roman citizen, I have the right to be tried in the capital city instead of out in a, in a colonial outpost like Caesarea. So the Romans have to get him there. And the Roman Navy doesn't have a ship in every port. So what they had to do in the ancient world is what happens here. Julius, the centurion, has to contract with a civilian shipper, a civilian boatmaster, to take him and all of his prisoners to Rome. So he pays this ship captain and ship owner, and they board this ship, 276 people aboard. That gives you an indication how big the boat was. And that includes owner, captain, all the sailors of the crew, all the soldiers that served under Julius, all the prisoners, including Paul, and two of his friends, Luke and Aristarchus, who also obviously had to pay their own way, which shows you what good friends they are. Out of their own pocket, they paid to take this long and dangerous journey with their friend, and I'm sure they immediately regretted it. The first part of the journey is slower than expected. By mid-September, which is the time you usually get off the waters of the Mediterranean because it gets too dangerous, by that time, they had only reached the shore of Crete, a little, a little harbor called Fair Havens. And Fair Havens was a tiny little town, and the, the captain and the owner both said, we don't want to stay in Fair Havens for the winter. We're sailors. We need some action. We don't want to spend the whole winter playing tiddlywinks with a bunch of little old ladies. Let's get to Phoenix where there's a little more nightlife, a little better situation, a bigger town. But Paul says, like Han Solo in Star Wars, I got a bad feeling about this. Literally what he says is, the Lord has told me if we go any further right now, if we don't wait for better weather, we could die and we'll definitely lose everything. But Julius chooses to listen to these two experienced men of the sea instead of this little Jewish prophet who is his prisoner. And so they take off on what should be, in the words of Gilligan, a three-hour tour, right? Just a short little journey down the coast. But that's not what happens. Verse 13, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. Now, you know it's bad because it's got a name, right? You don't name storms that are minor. This one in Greek is called Uraquilo, which sounds even 
more deadly than Northeaster. And notice that it's called a tempestuous wind. In Greek, that's the word typhonikos, from which we get our current word typhoon, because that's what it was. It was a hurricane force wind, and ships back then were not built for that kind of thing. Jim Cantori from the Weather Channel was not there to warn them, and so they're caught in this terrific storm, and they have no recourse. All they can do is just let themselves be blown. Verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Notice that pronoun, we. You get the indication that Luke had to actually get over and help the sailors pull up the lifeboat because it was so full of water. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. They were afraid the ship was going to fall apart. They passed ropes underneath it to hold it together. Then, fearing that we would run aground on the Sirtis, side note, the Sirtis is a famous ship's graveyard there on the coast of Crete, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. That's when you really know it's bad because they've gotten rid of their whole reason for going to, to Rome in the first place. This, this ship owner had, was carrying a load of grain to sell when he got to Rome, and now he's thrown it all into the sea. Why? Well, it, you know, you're not going to make any money. Your, your sailors aren't going to get paid, but that's better than being dead, right? You have to lighten the load somehow, and it gets worse. Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Even Luke says, I thought we were going to die. And little wonder because in the ancient world, there was only one way of navigating on the sea. They didn't have radar. They didn't have any way of knowing where they were except to look up and see where the North Star was, where the sun was when it rose. Well, they hadn't seen that for three solid days. Can you imagine just being blown through the wind like a leaf? Verse 21 says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, please note, it sounds like Paul's saying, I told you so, but he's not really. What, he said, what he's doing is he's establishing credibility as a prophet. The Old Testament that Paul had grown up with said that if a prophet ever made a prediction that didn't come true, stop listening to him. Which, by the way, side note, there's a lot of preachers today that are very popular. You need to stop listening to, okay? They've said things that aren't true. Stop listening. Okay, that's, that's not the sermon. That's for free. But <laughs> Paul is saying, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you this was going to happen. It has happened. You didn't listen to me. Will you listen to me now? Because I've got important information for you to hear. So verse 27, when the 14th night had come, yes, you heard that right, 14 days they've been caught in the storm. I think any one of us would have lost our sanity by this time. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. 
A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, which mean that land means land is approaching. Good news, right? Well, no, because it's dark. They won't be able to see what's ahead. They might run into something. So the verse, verse 29 says, "...in fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come." Don't you love that detail? How accurate that must have been. "...and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow." Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And the Army-Navy game is still contentious to this day, right? So why does Paul say that? Why does Paul say, if these sailors get away, none of us will survive? I mean, earlier that night, he said, we're all going to live. God told me. Is Paul contradicting himself? No. Paul is bringing up an important point of theology that we all need to understand. See, there's this tendency for some Christians to believe that God micromanages every detail of human life. So any bad thing that happens to us, well, obviously that's God's judgment. I must have, I must have earned this somehow. Or, you know, God, God must be punishing me for something I've done. On the other hand, there are people who think God is not, if He's even there, He's not involved in our lives at all. So whatever happens, we're on our own. And what Paul reveals here is neither one of those is true. He says, yeah, God told me that we're all going to survive. But if these, if these sailors get away, there's going to be nobody to pilot the ship to the shore and we'll drown. God's not going to kill us, but he's not gonna, it's not his fault if we do something stupid and die. Do you see? So the truth is somewhere in the middle. God is not in charge of everything that happens. He does not... He does not ordain everything that happens in the course of life. Sometimes bad things happen because we make bad decisions. Sometimes bad things happen because someone else does something awful. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a sinful world. But on the other hand, He's with us. He's involved. He intervenes when He chooses. So the truth is somewhere in the middle, and we rarely know what God is up to. Got it? Okay, so verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. You can imagine how hungry you might be after two solid weeks with no food, and seeing someone eat a piece of bread would finally awaken in you that hunger. And so they began to eat. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now let's go to verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. Why did the soldiers want to kill all the prisoners? You probably know this, but if you're a Roman soldier and you let a prisoner go, you have to serve that prisoner's sentence. 
So they thought, hey, better there's more of them than there are of us. Better to kill them all than take the chance that one of us could get into big, big trouble. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And that's a great story. And I think part of why it's so detailed and so vivid is that Luke was an eyewitness. It's probably the most terrifying, most thrilling thing he ever experienced. But I want you to notice something. Paul starts off the story as a prisoner, and he ends the story in charge. I mean, why on earth are the ship's captain and the ship's owner and Julius Centurion, at the end of the story, they're listening to Paul, this prisoner, give them orders? Well, because Paul was courageous when no one else was. Paul literally saved their lives three separate times. He, he saved their lives by keeping the sailors from escaping on the lifeboat. He saved their lives by encouraging them to eat instead of passing out from hunger. He saved their lives by endearing himself and earning the trust of the commander so that all the prisoners weren't slaughtered. Paul, I mean, if this was a test of Paul's courage, he passed with flying colors. And you might say, well, that's great for him, Jeff, but what about me? I'm not Paul. I don't I'm not an apostle. I've never seen Jesus face to face. How can I be that courageous? Well, here's the thing. There are two things that brought Paul courage. I, I am dead sure Paul was not born courageous. He had to learn courage over time. And there are two things that brought him courage, and those two things are available to us too. So let's get to those. Number one, courage is found in experiencing storms. Man, I wish I could tell you this isn't true. I wish I could tell you that God just drops courage on you like a, like a bomb and you wake up the next day and you have no fear. But it's not the way it works. At least I've never met anybody who experienced it that way. Fear is earned. It's found in experiencing storms. I want to show you something from one of Paul's letters, and, and you've seen this before, and I've read it during the course of this series, but I want to show you again. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. This is Paul's list of all the things he suffered for the sake of Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I'm not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. If that was a job description, would you sign up? No. This is what Paul had endured by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians. And notice, if you, if you know the book of Acts or if you've been with us through this series, most of the stuff he mentions are not things we know about. In other words, they're not recorded in Acts. We don't know the details. So even though we've seen Paul experience a lot of trials and pain and anxiety, we don't even know the half of it. But notice how many times he says he was shipwrecked. Three times. By the way, 2 Corinthians was written before the events of Acts 27. So that means what happens in Acts 27 is Paul's fourth shipwreck. Four times the brother needs to stop taking boats. That's all I'm saying. I mean, this is, this is an experience he has had over and over again. And in at least one of those moments, he had to drift in the sea, holding on to a plank or something else 
to not die, to not drown. So I want you to ask yourself the question, do you think that Paul was as courageous in his first shipwreck as he is in his fourth? I'd be willing to bet no. I'd be willing to bet he was just as afraid as everybody else that first time. Courage is built through experiencing storms, through experiencing difficulties, through experiencing things that are dangerous and fearful. And and I I hate that because I don't know about you, but I want a trouble-free life. Actually, I do know about you. You want a trouble-free life too. I don't don't see evil Knievel sitting in our audience today, in our congregation. And, And so, You want a life that is trouble-free. You want a life that is anxiety-free. You build in certain safeguards to protect your children, to protect your spouse, to protect yourself. You you stay away from people who make your blood pressure rise. You, You avoid danger and trouble, and yet, and yet, it is our trials that bring us growth. And I'm not saying we should intentionally put ourselves in harmful situations. I'm saying that when those trials come, just know this is an opportunity to grow in courage and and dozens of other great, great uh, aspects and characteristics. When you are going through trouble, use it. When your soul is afraid, when you can't sleep at night, when you have to wake up in the morning and have a difficult conversation, or you have to have a surgical procedure you're worried about, or when your, your life is in turmoil, use it. And just say, Lord, teach me courage. Teach me to trust you now like never before. Teach me to believe in you and not be afraid because I want to represent you well. Courage is found in experiencing storms, but that's not all. It's also found in knowing who God is. Because if all you have is trials and troubles, you won't become courageous. You know that old saying, what doesn't kill you just makes you stronger? That's not in the Bible. And it's not true. Because I've seen people who've endured trouble after trouble after trouble. They didn't come out stronger. They came out more bitter. They came out more fearful. They came out more self-centered, more self-pitying. So trouble alone doesn't make you courageous. Paul was brave because he knew who God was. And he had experienced storms with God at his side. Notice what he says to when he's standing in front of the people. He says, the God to whom I belong has told me we're going to be okay. Now you might say, well, I'd be brave too if an angel showed up and said, you're going to be all right. I'd believe him. No, you wouldn't. And you know how I know that? Because you and I are no better than the people depicted in the scriptures. And every time an angel appeared to somebody for the first time, they were terrified. There's never a case where somebody says, oh, hey, what's up, angel? No, they are scared to death. The angel literally has to say, fear not. So it's not the angel that makes Paul calm. It's knowing who God is. Again, he says, the God to whom I belong has told me we're going to make it. Let me ask you a question. How does Paul know that he belongs to God? If your answer is, well, because he had served God for 14, 15 years, he'd been planning churches, he'd been preaching the gospel, he knew the Bible, he'd been praying, he'd been helping people. That's how he knew he belonged to God. That's the wrong answer. Because you can do all of those things and not belong to God. No, Paul knew he belonged to God for one reason and one reason alone. Remember, he said over and over again, I'm the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the apostles. I'm the only one of the apostles that killed the church. I I don't deserve this at all. There's one reason Paul knew he belonged to God. Galatians 3.13 says it. Christ bought us with his blood. 
Christ bought us with his blood. Now, I don't know much about economics. Don't ask me to explain the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the Federal Reserve or any of that stuff. Here's what I know about economics. Stuff is worth what people pay for it. So your mom is digging through the attic. She finds this box with all these little cardboard cards with pictures of baseball players on them. And she's like, okay, he's not a little boy anymore. He doesn't need these. And she throws them away. And you're like, mom, there were $50,000 worth of goods in that box. There was a rookie card of Mickey Mantle in that box. Why is a little piece of cardboard worth that much? Because there are people on earth who will pay that for it. We here in Texas know all about that. 200 years ago, if you were digging around on a piece of land and you were trying to dig a water well and you came to a spot where there was this black liquid bubbling out of the earth, you would just shake your head and say, okay, I guess I got to dig somewhere else. But 200 years later, the same thing happens and you're a multimillionaire. Why? Because in our world, as opposed to that world, people are willing to pay lots and lots of money for that black liquid. It's oil, by the way, in case you were wondering. So, Stuff is worth what people pay for it. If the God who knows everything is willing to pay his own blood for you, that's how much you're worth. You are worth the life of the Son of God. Not because of anything intrinsic in you, but because he chose to pay that for you. And if he chose to pay that for you, then he doesn't take you lightly. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't ignore you. He's aware of what you're going through. He cares, and he's going to preserve you. And it's not just the fact that you're worth a lot to him. Paul knew also that our God is not like the gods of the pagan world. See, the gods that human beings make up are gods who either ignore us completely or, or say, yeah, you can come to me if you're good enough, or they frankly sit up on a cloud and lob lightning bolts at us. But our God is different. Our God is different. You can look and find lots of commonalities between Christianity and other world religions. There are lots of parallels and there's lots of common ground. But here's something unique. Find me another God who suffers. Find me another God who willingly suffers, who allows himself to be rejected, who allows himself to be beaten, who allows himself to be crucified. Find me another God who will die for you. You won't. It's only Jesus. And so Paul says, I know that my God is with us. And I know, I know when you've been going through hard times, people have said to you, don't worry, God is with you. And you've said, yeah, that doesn't help. Yeah, I, I frankly, I need a God with skin on. Well, you've got one. You've got a God who put skin on and came into your world and died for you. And so you have a God who's, who loves you that much and to whom you are worth that much. That means whatever you're going through, he's there with you. And that means he can redeem the worst of what the world throws at you. No matter what happens, he can take it and redeem it. And not only that, he's going to intervene when the time is right. And not only that, he's going to give you the strength and the courage if you will let him to carry you through. And you can become, you can grow into the kind of man or woman that someday when the world's falling apart, everyone will look to you and say, how on earth, how on earth do you have this courage? And you'll be able to say, because of Jesus. That's where our courage comes from.